Hi, and welcome to Crypto Facto with Josh and Jonathan. I'm Josh Clayman. And I'm Jonathan Ching, and we're from the global law firm of Linklaters. On this podcast, you'll hear our hot takes on some of the hottest topics affecting the digital assets and tech spaces. Of course, these are our personal views only, and nothing we say here today is legal advice, investment advice, or any other kind of advice. But we do think it's interesting. So hold on tight and let's get to it. Hi, everyone. We're back and we've got a lot to talk about, as always. Um, Here is a rundown of the things that we're going to cover today or that we expect to cover. We're going to briefly touch upon Bittrex and what it means um, for the industry and what may come next. Uh, We're going to talk about Gary Gensler's hearings, um, the House hearings that focus on Gary Gensler, the stablecoin hearings and stablecoin bill that recently was introduced or shall we say reintroduced, Mika's passage and related matters, a California court's decision about Yuga Labs and the Lanham Act, and Taylor Swift's good sense related to FTX. So here we go. Jonathan, do you want to kick us off about Bittrex and why we're starting off with that? So absolutely. Uh, You know, a few weeks ago, we talked on, on this podcast about what, one of the themes that was developing in the SEC's enforcement uh, against crypto. And one of the things that we have said for years, you know, you and I and, and others in the industry who have been advising clients is, you know, there's another thing besides whether a token is a security. And that is whether or not, if it is a security, the venue or platform on which it is traded is a registered securities exchange, you know, a... Yeah, you know, dark, you know, dark pool, alternative trading system, all these different types of industry classifications. But basically, whether or not it's tra- traded on a regulated venue, if the venue on which a security token is traded is not registered, then there's a violation of securities laws, presumptively. And one of the things that the SEC seems to want to do is really reestablish the traditional barriers between a broker-dealer that uh, transacts for clients an exchange where buyers and sellers meet and a clearinghouse on which trades are settled and money is actually processed and moved. So those are the three traditional elements of a, you know, of securities trading. Those have been combined or collapsed in the crypto space into a single entity. So when you trade on a Coinbase, when you trade on any kind of centralized exchange, an FDX famously, all those functions are basically in one place. There's no different set of broker dealers out there transacting for clients across an exchange, which then uses a third party or even a related party to do its settlement and clearing. So the Bittrex example is, is very you know, interesting. And you know, roughly, uh, they, they were basically saying that there are six, these SEC is alleged, there's six tokens that Bittrex facilitated trading in, which were securities, and therefore, Bittrex was required to register as a securities exchange, which it never did. And that's, uh, you know, basically a lot of different violations occurred as a result. So with that as background, Josh, I mean, the, the big issue, well, <laughs> I shouldn't say the big issue. There's lots of big issues, right? And, and we should probably just talk about those. So I think some of the interesting things that have come out, um, and you talked about the the different tokens that have been identified as allegedly being securities, again, people have said, look, this is the SEC doing it again, where these token issuers don't have the chance to defend themselves because they're not a party to this suit. 
I think people have also focused on a couple of different things. One, um, and I mean, I think we've said this in the past, certainly it, it's my view, and I believe it's yours as well, that the SEC isn't listing tokens at random, right? But maybe, maybe they're putting out specific fact patterns to say, you know what, you think that this flips through and isn't a security, you're wrong. You think that this fact pattern isn't a security, you're wrong. And I think one of them that stands out, to me at least, is Dash, right? And the reason, I mean, folks have, have raised concerns at, at other times about privacy tokens generally, right? But generally not as a security flaw matter um, have they been focused on. And Dash, as is evidenced or is detailed in the complaint, it was issued or it was released initially, launched initially on or about January 18th, 2014. So that is way before the 2017 Dow report, right? And it involves mining. Now, the SEC does focus on things like master nodes, right? And um, saying that Dash claims to be run by a subset of its users, which are called master nodes. But I think it's really interesting because the SEC generally, it seems, has tended to leave alone, at least lately, proof of work situations, proof of work um, blockchains or consensus mechanisms where there wasn't an ICO. And so it's just very interesting um, that they've focused specifically on Dash. I think that may have been a bit of a surprise for people. Another thing is Algo. Um, and a lot is being made of a video that has resurfaced and is circulating on Twitter. I don't believe it to be a deep fake. So assuming that it is accurate, um, it appears to show Gary Gensler talking about the merits of Algo. And I think some people are saying, how could he do this just a couple of years ago and then now be leading the SEC and claiming that Algo is a security? Jonathan, what do you think? It's an interesting question because there was a time, right, which where Gary Gensler, you know, in between being chair of CFTC and, and the SEC was an academic, you know, working at MIT. And he seemed really enamored of crypto and the block, you know, the use of blockchain technologies, things like that. He taught a class on it. You know, remember Josh, the, all the optimism when he was first, you know, everyone said, when they first said they were pointing him to the SEC, oh, that's great because we got finally get somebody who understands some some of the technology or understands the principles and therefore may keep an open mind at least. Um, seems like he may have done some things <laughs> where you know, or you know, he may be changing his mind a bit. And there's all sorts of speculation as to why there's been a basic 180 degree pivot and with a ramping up enforcement cycle. You know, I think the number I heard quoted in the hearings was 65 enforcement cases in the last two years against crypto actors in the space. It seems like an inordinately high amount of you know, time and energy for the SEC to devote to one segment of this market. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, you know, all of it leads us to believe though that they are headed in a completely different and sort of unexpected direction. Um, you know, Algo, I think, was fairly well thought up, right, Josh, in the space, uh, you know, in the sense that it had, you know, a large supply minted. It's been trading for a while. There's lots of different individuals using it. It has a fairly robust 
from what I understand, governance uh, program and you know different people participate in it. It's listed on different exchanges. So, um, you know, one one theory, you know, someone someone had mentioned was there's all sorts of different cases that are being launched and they don't really use the same group of securities or the same group of allegations that crypto are securities. They're mm -hmm. using, the SEC uses different coins in each case as a test. And they're trying to see what sticks, right? Throw spaghetti against the wall and see what sticks. So maybe this is more of that because there's a, they, they had another enforcement last week against an individual and they didn't mention any of these six tokens that they're alleging that Bitrix was trading illegally. Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And I also think, you know, it, it does also make one wonder how much of this is their view of token original sin, right? Because one may say, oh, this is decentralized. Oh, this is, you know, and we all know that that's not enough, but to the extent that that relates to, you know, not relying on the efforts of identified others, right? For purposes of the Howey test. I mean, you know, some that take the view that you know if if the token was not sold pursuant to valid exemptions from registration and it wasn't registered under the us in in accordance with the us federal securities laws that it is an illegally issued security and it remains one notwithstanding you know any later decentralization or or change so it is an interesting question and one other thing that you and i had talked about briefly just right before uh, this podcast was, you know, the identity of these tokens and that certain of them appear to be listed on Coinbase and whether, you know, this is just one more step um, in the SEC building a case against Coinbase, not just in the sense of, of separating out various functions, but really trying to have at least one token where the SEC can say gotcha to Coinbase. So I, I, I think there is something to that theory. And I've heard it, you know, lots of smart people who we talk to have, have said to me, you know, it seems like they're circling around Coinbase. They know if they go at Coinbase, you know, they've already sort of fired the first shot with the Wells notice, but you're not going to launch into it specifically without having some judge-made precedent that helps. And so all of these other cases are pretty, you know, in, Bittrex had already agreed to leave the United States, right? I can't mm -hmm. imagine the SEC thinks this is a, a, as big of an issue as, you know, dealing with a large U.S. listed, famously listed, you know, approved by the SEC, uh, you know, the, the largest exchange left standing, right? It, it can't be as important in relative, you know, in terms of regulation and enforcement. But there's the two big themes are, Propping up the traditional, you know, broker dealer versus exchange versus clearinghouse model. The other is, you know, there is some element of retribution for what happened last year, particularly with FTX. I think everybody feels burned, right? Everyone feels that they were <laughs> misled by the industry and to some effect. And and I think I'm, I'm surprised actually that you know, well, whereas crypto maybe last year was seen as a very bipartisan issue. I think we heard this on, on the talk that we did uh, a couple of days ago, right, Jeff? The crypto was a bipartisan issue, and now it's become a very polarizing one. Exactly. Exactly. And when you said everybody got burned by FTX, not everybody. The queen of burn herself, Taylor Swift, did not get burned, right? And it was <laughs> allegedly because, or reportedly, 
because she asked one question. Can you tell me that the, these tokens are not securities? Which, you know, actually seems like a reasonable question to have asked, but I think it sounded like she was getting better advice than most. So, so good for her. Exactly. Exactly. Well, um, she can write her next song about that if she <laughs> if she wishes. <laughs> the one that got away and we're happy about it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so when you're talking about the bipartisan issues, you know, and also when we talk about Gary Gensler's prior comments about Algo and how they may be haunting him in a sense, or at least in the media, right? I think that may factor into a lot of what we saw last week with the hearings, the House hearings involving Gary Gensler, right? He was repeatedly asked where, whether he thought either was a security and he repeatedly hedged and didn't quite answer. And now, you know, some of those questions, especially where people were saying, you know, I'm going to reclaim my time. It's yes or no, I'm reclaiming my time. You know, query how much of that was really requesting an answer versus wanting to make a statement. Um, but I do think, you know, anything that Gary Gensler could have said, it likely would have haunted him. Why do you think he didn't give an, a, an answer about whether either was a security? Well, I mean, there, there's a couple ways to look at it. I mean, the first is it's traditional, you know, DC theater. And he knew that going in, just like the TikTok, you know, testimony was, I mean, it was just sort of bizarre and weird. And it, it plays in our, as part of our system. But, you know, some people were saying, you know, there was no reason for him to need to testify at all, uh, which I sort of disagree with. I think this actually was very enlightening. Um, you know, obviously, uh, Congressman McHenry has a very clear axe to grind and wanted to get it out there that, you know, he's trying his best to get clarity for the industry on that. And I think he said, said as much, right? Absolutely. Um, but there's no upside to him answering the question, either saying yes or no in that kind of forum. I think he wants to reserve it for his rulemaking and enforcements. And so his position, if you believe it, whether or not it's it's you know intellectually consistent, is everything but Bitcoin, right? Everything but Bitcoin is a security. We haven't said anything else. Um, that's not really strictly speaking true. There's been staff interpretations like you know the famous Hinman speech or the Dow report or the framework. You know, they put things out prior to Gensler's chairmanship of the SEC. Or action letters. Right. And there's there's plenty of stuff right on the record that that called all this into question. But his position, and I'm just saying his position, not whether or not I believe it, you know, would be, well, you guys know you're on notice. It's all securities except for Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting that he said, well, you wouldn't want me to prejudge. Right. And he talked about <laughs> we need to know the facts and the facts and circumstances. I mean, that seems to be a very important thing to remember, which is that whatever Chairman Gensler actually believes, ultimately, if these token issuers aren't going to settle and if these platforms aren't going to settle, then it's going to come down to what a court believes, right? What a judge believes, unless unless and until um, Congress make, makes changes, which it doesn't seem, in my view, like they're likely to pass legislation um, that would be liberalizing, as we've discussed before. I do think it was it was really interesting. Some of the questions, though, for example, Gary Gensler being asked about whether he had conferred with Elizabeth Warren about <laughs> <laughs> I 
answers to the questions, which is really um, when you talk about things being partisan, my heavens. And yeah. then I, I was thinking also in terms of if Gary Gensler, if he were to have said that Ether, in his view, were not a security, right? He does have the New York AG with an ongoing case, you know, against KuCoin in which it is explicitly stated or alleged that Ether is a security. So the odds that he would come out and say, no, I don't think it is, or I think it's unlikely are highly, highly unlikely, right? Although we already, we already knew that. Um, yeah, I, no, I, I mean, real quickly, uh, you, you bring up the courts and I think this is going to be a very interesting test of agency power, administrative agency power and administrative law. And I think it's coming up in a lot of contexts. You know, if you say that the federal judiciary is probably more conservative than it was five years ago, which I think is a fair statement, and you say that the agencies have been pushing the envelope, and it's not just the SEC, I'm thinking in particular the EPA as well, have been right. pushing the envelope with their rulemakings. And there is a lot of stuff going through the federal courts right now where the courts have said, actually, your agency power is not unlimited. This could be a very, you know, a big smack in the face to the SEC. It, it turns out it can't do all the things that it wants to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think so just, just stepping back a second, you know, it's often said that history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. But actually, it seems that in our industry, in digital assets, history repeats itself frequently. Um, for example, when we think of the Dow report, which focused on a virtual investment fund that the SEC deemed to involve the issuance of a token that was a security in the SEC's view, you know, and then the emergence of, you know, just in the past year or two, investment DAOs where people have argued that it's not a security or that it doesn't involve the offer and sale of a security. That's puzzling. Um, but perhaps just as puzzling is the, the reintroduction of the identical stablecoin bill that was introduced last September. Um, I, I think it's so interesting for the longest time when people said, oh, what do you think the next, what do you think the first legislation that, that the federal government may pass, what do you think it would be? You know, I had always said, oh, I think it would be a stable coin bill and maybe it would look like more like New York's bill or maybe now that we've seen what happened um, with SVB and the other banks just a month ago, maybe they wouldn't want banks to hold, you know, reserves, you know, things like that, or maybe you'd want to limit the reserves. So I thought that there would be some changes based on that. But literally, the identical draft bill that was published last September has been reintroduced, and people haven't really been focusing on this. I mean, there was a political a Politico article that does focus on it, um, but it's, it's interesting, as Politico points out, McHenry um, Patrick McHenry had dubbed the bipartisan measure an ugly baby, in quotes, last fall after he and Maxine Waters scuttled plans to formally introduce and mark up the measure. And so it is, it is really interesting that after everything that has happened since last September, right, <laughs> the fall of FTX, the bankruptcies of Celsius and numerous other players, and the 
you know, the, the contagion, the bank uh, challenges of the past month. And, you know, one of the things in the stablecoin bill, you know, that, that has been proposed is, is that the Fed would take the lead, the Federal Reserve. And we heard really strong pushback from all sorts of folks last fall and last winter or this past, you know, few months um, at the end of 2022 about how the Fed was not ready for something like this. And the idea now that the Fed, after having experienced what it's experienced um, relating to banks and crypto, um, that it would somehow be ready and be able to, to overcome the objections is really surprising. And I, I, don't, I don't want to take anything away, by the way, from those folks from the digital asset space, um, including Dante Desparte and others who did testify um, about stable coins in the hearings. I think that was well worthwhile. I just don't see how something like this is going to pass. And what I've heard um, is that unofficially, and certainly, <laughs> as we always say, not legal advice, not investment advice, not any kind of advice, like completely unsubstantiated rumor, is that it's unlikely to pass because the other regulators just don't want to give up jurisdiction. And granted, it's not the regulators who are sitting there voting or not voting for a bill, but I do think that their presence is, is felt strongly. Jonathan, I know you had some views as well about this. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it seems to, you know, sort of, it, it hasn't been sufficiently modified from what I understand. I haven't studied the issue very closely, but, you know, it, it died last fall because people had some real concerns. Those concerns, if anything, have been exacerbated by the bank run, you know, debacle of, of March. And so, you know, it, it, it seems to me that actually the you know people who felt one way about stable coins before are now more firmly entrenched and people who felt one way about traditional banks are now more entrenched in their positions so i agree with you it seems very unlikely that there's going to be an immediate passage of any kind of legislation that addresses this so you know the question may be well why why do it i think people want to say that they tried to be able to tell their constituencies that they are pushing this agenda forward, keeping it on the legislative agenda. Um, but there are, you know, questions like this reserve requirements and how you deal with insolvencies and whether state, to your point about regulators, whether state regulators are actually the primary regulators of these products. You know, is New York's, uh, you know, New York going to cede power to the feds, right? It currently has a, a lot of say in how this works. Uh, can we issue digital assets that are, you know, deposit coins? I've worked on a couple of projects, as you know, Josh, that are about digitizing dollars for various reasons. So could you, you know, does the Fed view that as an existential threat? And then, you know, sort of the, the, I think that the question about how you backstop all of this and how you report it, I guess, was the other big point. You know, what kind of reporting is acceptable and what are the penalties? if you fail, fail to register. So lots of questions. Absolutely. And I mean, I really do think, though, if you think back to the comments from last year, a lot of it just said, you know, the Fed is not capable of this. The Fed is not ready for this. And so it's... And it's maybe very, the Fed doesn't want this. <laughs> I mean, it, it very well could be. 
I mean, we've also seen the SEC just in the past couple of months come out, I think it was in February, but I, I don't have it handy, where they brought suit against Do Kwan for um, what they called, and I believe it was a yield-bearing stable coin. They referred to the Terra Luna situation as involving. Right. Um, so, you know, again, who knows? <laughs> who knows? But I am surprised that it hasn't been more upfront um, in the media that this is the same bill. Um, it, it seemed like there was all kinds of excitement that a new stablecoin bill has been introduced. And um, I think that's great that the excitement is there, but I think we just need some straight talk <laughs> and also straight talk about how likely things are, are to happen. Yeah. Now, when uh, it's fine. Oh, go ahead. Oh, well, I, I think you're about to lead into it. We can talk about the, the contrast of what's going on in Europe. Exactly, exactly. In terms of things that passed, um, Mika, Mika passed at the end of last week. Um, and it was approved with 529 votes in favor to 29 against, against and 14 abstentions. So, um, you know, the EU, some may say it's really in the lead. I think this, people are saying that this pushed a lot of pressure on the UK and on the US. Although I don't really think the U.S. is feeling the pressure. <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, I think, again, I think there's a large part of the, you know, policy making the part of Washington, D.C. that, you know, where you say to them, they argue, the U.S. is falling behind competitively in an industry in which it you know, was the leader, is the leader presumptively because of all the companies that start here and all the funding that goes on in the United States. And people will unusually for this kind of thing, shrug back and say, okay, so what? I don't really care. Uh, I actually think it does more harm than good as an industry, which is interesting. And I think somewhat unique, at least to my experience. I don't know if you have other analogies in mind, but uh, the fact is that Europe is taking it seriously. And that the the markets and crypto assets regulation, Bika, is going to do a lot to advance the discussion. And what we're seeing now, at least again, as part of the overall pol politics of this is, you know, folks like Brian Armstrong at Coinbase saying, well, I got to think about whether my company should even be in the United States, given the regulatory approach or lack of regulatory clarity, where I can go somewhere where I know that I'm operating within the confines of the law. Yeah, I mean, it's a Good question. Although some are saying, like, is that for real? Like, would Coinbase really leave the U.S.? And if you look at his quote, he says, like, maybe someday. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? someday. I, I don't think he's. I don't think he's going anywhere anytime soon. But I think it, what they, if you read what they actually said, and I did, it says something about changing the allocation of resources. So right now, I think you know, and again, I'm pulling this out of uh, off the top of my head, but you know, they may however many billion in the United States annually, they make in single digit millions or double digit millions in Europe. So it's a, it's a very different revenue proposition for Coinbase. For sure. Uh, because their customer base is in the United States and regardless of whether they're headquartered there or not, they're going to be subject to whatever US rules and regulations will apply. Yeah, I mean, some people are saying, well, why doesn't the US just do something like Mika? But I would say, you know, 
MECA is intended to cover crypto assets that aren't regulated by existing financial services legislation. In the US, we'd say, well, what are those? <laughs> right, because we don't have those kinds of categories. As the SEC keeps reminding us, you know, we have to look at the actions, the activities and the functions. We need to look at the marketing, the offer and sale. You know, we can't just categorize them. And I do think, you know, some of the things like, you know, the, the travel rule, which is already used in traditional finance, you know, having that cover future transactions and crypto assets for these other types of, of digital assets that aren't already covered by the financial services legislation that existed before. Um, you know, there are things about market manipulation and other things. I, I think it's a real accomplishment that it was passed, but from some of our colleagues, including, I, I probably, well, maybe I will take his name in vain, <laughs> our colleague Florian Rule in Frankfurt, I recall him presenting on MIGA um, in the past six months or so, and he described, you know, the period after Mika, one, Mika being passed as being the period before Mika two, right? Because there are there are still, I believe, gaps. I mean, Mika has been largely silent, as I understand it, with respect to NFTs and DeFi. Um, and it's interesting because those are areas, particularly DeFi, um, but also NFTs, where U.S. regulation has really started to focus, including with the SEC's new rulemaking, right? where they, with this new reopened proposal or resubmitted proposal for the rule that would expand the definition of exchange, where now instead of being a Trojan horse, not even mentioning crypto, they come right out in the release and talk about DeFi and the absolute application to digital assets, um, as opposed to being that, that being a hidden thing. Now, some people think that's because of the Administrative Procedures Act. And, you know, to your point, earlier, Jonathan, about, you know, the SEC really expanding its scope and courts maybe, maybe trying to limit actions to what they have statutory authority to do. I, I think some believe that the reason for all this talk about DeFi and digital assets in this re-release proposal is so that they don't face the challenge under the Administrative Procedures Act that there was. So I yeah, think I think, I think there are a lot of you know, a lot that a lot of what has gone on in the last year and a half has been very problematic from you know just an administrative authority perspective. And I'm no no expert in administrative law, but just from working with rules over the years, you can see very clearly the shrinking of comment periods and the increase in the request for areas to comment on. And those two things just don't line up. So the fact of the matter is the SEC is acting asking people to comment on on these perplexingly complex rules in a month, you know, 30 days. And that's just is not how things have gone in the past. That's a 180, a 270 day type timeline typically. Uh, and so if they're really going to take the process seriously, which, you know, the Supreme Court has said that they have to do, they really have to give people the opportunity to respond. It does also make me think when I look at the, um, at the re-released proposal where they specifically cite to different no action letters, that they cite to some of the most critical no action letters among others. Um, and it just makes me think that they're just preparing potentially for someone to challenge the application of this proposed rule if it is adopted, right? And be, 
being able to say, here's your fair notice. Here's your fair notice. I cited to your exact concern and here, here you go. So if I were to take a, a cynical view, I think I might say that. Um, with respect to market manipulation and other sorts of things, I just would like to call out that last April, um, basically a year ago, Gibraltar actually released its, its market manipulation um, principle as part of its um, distributed ledger technology principles. Um, and so it is pretty far ahead in this. And I think that the way that Gibraltar treated market manipulation, now I'm a little bit um, biased, right? Because <laughs> sort of um, involved with, with it, but I, I think that the way that, that market, market manipulation was addressed and the sort of um, explanations and requirements that were, that were talked about in that principle, I think that that remains market leading. I do know that with respect to um, the UK, the UK has been trying to really come to the fore, although some may, may argue that it is far ahead of the US, others may, may not necessarily argue that, but my understanding is that, is that there's, a lot of, um, there's a lot of movement in the UK to try to um, develop regulation and to become a market leader for digital assets. Maybe now switching for a moment to a different topic. Um, you know, when we talk about NFTs, we've heard a lot lately. We've had the IRS talk about NFTs and how they might be treated for, for tax purposes. You know, that there was that comment that they released. Um, we've seen also a treasury report from last February saying that NFTs may be treated um, in a similar way to fine art and that FinCEN may have jurisdiction, right? We've also seen certain cases, including the Hermes Metaburkin case um, that basically showed that trademark infringement, it can occur even with digital assets and in the virtual world. And we saw just, um, just very recently that a judge in Northern California um, reached a decision in favor of Yuga Labs. Um, it was the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of California. They found that Yuga Labs owns the Board of Yacht Club trademarks, that they're valid and enforceable, and that the defendants use the Board of Yacht Club marks referring to the images to sell Ryder Rips Board of Yacht Club NFTs without Yuga Labs consent and in a manner likely to cause confusion with a similar product look confusing consumers intending to purchase an actual Board of Yacht Club NFT or track their value with token tracking tools. I'm reading this from an article in Coindesk um, that is by Sam Reynolds. It says judge rules Board of Yacht Club ripoff NFTs violated Yuga copyright. Well, what I think is really interesting about this is that um, there had been an argument raised that because the NFTs are intangible, they are not protected under the Lanham Act, uh, which governs trademarks, service marks, and unfair competition. So basically whether something is, um, is confusingly similar, right? And it provides protection against infringement and false advertising. And what the judge said um, was different. They, 
the judge determined that as virtual goods, NFTs still qualify as goods under the Lanham Act because they are unique, traceable, and brand-associated characteristics that they have. So um, it's it's very interesting that we are we are starting to see legal developments in a variety of spaces, even though we don't have necessarily bespoke federal legislation about digital assets. Yeah, I think, I mean, to the extent that this all goes back to the, you know, the unifying theme for today, which is in the absence of legislation, we're going to be in court and there's going to be lots of decisions coming out, I think, in the next year where we really see what the courts think about you know, digital assets as property, as, you know, subject to different regulatory regimes and, and you know, also just, you know, in the background, tax season just concluded, I'm sure there's going to be tax related, more tax related, uh, interesting things going on. I heard a lot of people were planning on filing extensions and things like that because they couldn't figure out how to treat their crypto for tax reporting purposes. So all sorts of things to come, right, Josh? Absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the things just building on what you said about the judiciary. When you're talking to different people in this space, I think it's always important, and this includes lawyers, it's important to understand what perspective they're coming from, right? Whether they're outside counsel, inside counsel, you know, non-counsel, there's a big difference between someone who is trying to provide regulatory advice about what the regulators are likely to think, right? And transactional advice about how to comply with regulations in light of what regulators say. And then on the other hand, litigators who may be more focused on what the regulator can prove in court. And finally, those who are essentially in a role formally or informally as lobbyists, right? Trying to talk about policy and policy reasons for passing regulations or introducing legislation and things like that. So I think this is becoming more and more clear because I, I find myself sometimes going back and forth between the two. I'll, I'll say, you know what, what the SEC is saying is entirely clear what they believe you know, that every digital asset is likely to be a security nearly, certainly if it's if it's issued and sold for capital raising purposes. But at the same time, as you heard me say earlier in this podcast, you know, irrespective of what Chairman Gensler thinks, ultimately, if folks don't settle, these these matters will have to be decided in court. Absolutely. I think everyone's gearing up for a big fight in the absence of, of a, you know, I think we all recognize this Congress, this administration is not going to be the one that puts out the unifying regulation as we've just seen in Europe. And there's going to be lots of different grounds on which fights are, you know, legal fights are, are litigated. And that will do a lot to shape where things go from here. You're right. And this week is um, the week of consensus. A lot of folks are heading to Austin, and I think it is the perfect time for it. I know you and I are both likely to be in Texas this week, so we'll see what happens. Let's keep our eyes and ears open. Absolutely. Looking forward to seeing everyone. And there you have it, our hot 
Takes for today. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jonathan Ching. And I'm Josh Clayman. Join us next time on Crypto Facto with Josh Johnson. Thanks.